So I'll stand for reading the word today, please. In, in your, you're in your living rooms, you're online, please stand also. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. These are the words of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. All right, if you were paying attention, you picked up on several key phrases right away. Pro tip, Dave, always write the things up here first, and we don't have to stare at you when, you're, when your back is turned to us. <laughs> Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So those who trust in the Lord, and then later it says those, again, whose hearts are upright, and then if you picked it up in verse four, it said what before the word those? But those. And so right away, you have this idea that there are those who trust in the Lord, and they are like this, and this is what God does in their lives, and this is how they respond to God's actions in their lives, but there are those who do not trust in the Lord. And they turn. And then at the very end, what was the last word that it said? It was peace. Hebrew word, of course, shalom. Now, in the original language, this is one sentence. It's the first sentence. And guess what? Right here are two phrases. Now, in our English translations, they come at the end. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, and then here comes the phrases, which cannot be shaken and endures forever. But in the original language, they're actually right here. Why is that? Well, because of course they're talking about a mountain, a mountain which doesn't move and doesn't change and will endure forever, uh, the mountain that has been in Jerusalem forever and is still there to this day. It is talking about a mountain in the way it doesn't change. But it's also modifying and talking about those. If you forget anything else about the next 25 or so minutes, just get that. God doesn't change. He endures forever. He cannot be shaken. And those of us who trust in the Lord cannot be shaken and will endure forever. Now, if you're not familiar with Mount Zion, uh, God has been on an adventure to communicate who he is and redeem his people since the beginning of time. And Mount Zion plays a key role in that. And so briefly, if we go backwards to go forwards, like Dave talked about last week, we could go back a little bit in time, and in the beginning, I mean the beginning, it tells us in the Hebrew that the Spirit of God, Ruach, the Spirit of God 
hovered over the waters at the creation of the world. And so this idea is, yes, God is in the cosmos and he makes his home in the heavens, but even then he was working to communicate who he was and be involved. And so creation happens. One of my favorite accounts of creation is Psalm 104. Great psalm to read when you're sitting outside uh, in New Hampshire, maybe in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) And so the idea is that God's hovering over the waters. And then very quickly, he reveals himself to people. And they begin to make, at his instruction, a home for him, a place for God to dwell. And initially, it's a tent, the tabernacle. And this is to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it moves around with the people. But then eventually, the tabernacle is placed at God's command on the top of Mount Zion. And in the scriptures, Mount Zion is the place where he dwells. It is the holy place. It is the place where, while reading the Psalms of Ascent that we're praying through all summer, the people would walk and they would ascend towards the mount. And they would do it three times a year. You with me so far? And so what God is telling us is that just like that doesn't change, those who trust in the Lord We endure forever. We are just like that mount. Now, in July of 2020, like many of you, I was getting pretty antsy, and especially with the kids at home uh, all the time. And I decided to start hiking the mountains. And my first mountain uh, was... Mount Musilaki, I have a picture here, this is actually my son Cohen, who, if you're here at the pond today, he, same, same one, but just, he's a little bit older, stronger, taller now, uh, a little wiser too, and here we are at the top of Mount Musilaki, um, one of New Hampshire's 4,000 footers, as, as we were climbing up, halfway up the Beaver Brook Trail, which is the way I highly recommend, and when my heart rate finally settled a little bit, I had a memory, and, and it was like one of those sparks that you have, that you haven't thought about it in a long time, and the memory was from 20 years before when I was a kid, my son's age, about 13, 14 years old, I remembered I used to hike mountains on the Appalachian Trail. I backpacked, I, I did it all, and I had completely forgotten about it. I hadn't hiked mountains in 20 years. I had gone away to college. I was living in the city, pastoring in Pittsburgh 15 years. And I just, I wasn't on any mountains. And part of that, there were a number of reasons why. But all of a sudden, this, this spark, it's sort of like, oh, oh, I really like this. You know, like my wife and I, we had this like a couple weeks ago. You know, we'd, we, we actually got out on a date, right? And you're like halfway through the conversation, you're like, oh, this is nice. This is nice. There's this, this little spark. It's almost romantic in a way, right? And so I'm climbing the mountains, and I'm like, I love this. I want to climb all of these. And so began a journey of 16 months. Next picture. This is Tavin, and we're at the top. This is only about 10 days later. I'm climbing peaks 10, or um, I'm, I'm sorry, peaks 4 and 5, uh, and these are the Osceolas. Um, and then uh, another son uh, got up there with me. This is, this is uh, Penn Rye. He's now 10 years old at this time. He was 8. Um, we're climbing uh, Mount Hale in and you can see he's sort of sitting on this, uh, on this throne. Do you guys have that picture of the Mount Hale? It's the next one. All right. And then uh, after Mount Hale, um, then 
months and months of learning and preparation. And finally, in November of last year, 16 months after starting, I finished my 48th peak. Um, go ahead to the next one. Uh, this is actually the Franconia Ridge, just a, a shameless connection to the Psalms of Ascent uh, picture. I, I'm there. Um, and then this was my finish, and we're going to leave that up for a second. Now, anybody know what mountain this is? Yeah, Mount Washington, okay. Does it ever look like that? Not often. Unbelievable Mount Washington day. It was in November. It was about 19 degrees when I started at the trailhead. And I can tell you this, standing there taking that photo, there is not a single thing that I am wearing or carrying that I owned when I climbed Mount Musilaki. Not a single thing. Why? Because I had to learn so much. And I had to collect clothing and gear for all of the conditions that I would experience. And when you're climbing mountains, you learn it very quickly. Many of you have probably climbed more and faster than I have. But in my little bit of experience, there are three variables on the mountain. It's the mountain, the weather, and the person. And really, only two of them are variables. The mountain doesn't really change. Yeah, you're like, oh, what about if, you know, there's an earthquake or an avalanche? Yeah, okay, yeah, like, I'll give you like 0.01% of the time the mountain might change a little bit. Yeah, Everest is a centimeter taller today than it was 30 years ago, and Mount Washington is technically a couple centimeters lower. I get it, but the mountains aren't really changing. It's the weather, and it's us. Spiritually, I'd submit to you it's exactly the same way. And that's the heartbeat behind this psalm. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. God doesn't change. And if you want to know what his character is like, you just go to the very next verse. Verse 2, God is surrounding his people like the mountains surround Jerusalem. And so God doesn't change, and it doesn't mean that we should change. We should just be realistic, that the weather is constantly going to change around us spiritually. How many of you have been through what you would call a storm, something unexpected, right? We're even singing about them in our songs. It happens all the time to us. Those things happen. And how we respond, because there's those, but those. There's those who trust and then those who turn. And so just like climbing mountains, we have to accumulate what? Lessons, gear, things that will help us summit and accomplish the goals. What are those things? Well, they would be things like shared experiences, learning from other believers. Any parents in the room that have successfully graduated teenagers and they're like loving Jesus? Okay, I'm just, I'm sorry, can you just... Uh, can you just email me? It's melderdug at gmail.com. I'd like to learn from you. Others, please. Like, that's one of the ways. What else? Spiritual formation. We talk about it all the time. Practicing the way of Jesus together. Gathering as a community. Praying for one another. Praying on our own. It's praying through the Psalms. And if you've been reading the book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Peterson, which is taking us through the Psalms of Ascent, not too late to pick it up if you don't have it, 
He calls the Psalms, I love this, a dog-eared songbook. This idea of if you know the Psalms, it's something you're going back to all the time. It's like, anybody remember cassette tapes? Yeah, it's the one that got so worked over, you were like taking a pencil and you were re-spinning it and you're putting it in. That's the dog-eared songbook. You know it all. And if you read the dog-eared songbook, it is very clear that God is a fortress. Psalm 46, he encircles his people. Psalm 139, he goes before and behind us. Psalm 18, he's a rock, a refuge, a fortress. Verse 2, he encircles his people like the mountains encircle Jerusalem. God is a famously faithful fortress. Psalm 18, I just mentioned, my wife and I, 2015 to 2016, we were moving from Pittsburgh to New Hampshire. And there were a lot of things about that move that were challenging. And, but at its heart, we moved from a townhouse in the city where the bus would pass by in the mornings every seven minutes on our corner and literally shake the house to June 2016, moving on to a number of acres with apparently rock walls that you have to repair every year. And we had all this land. And almost immediately, because I've learned God often speaks to, to my wife before me. I know Pastor Dave is exactly the same way with Aaron. Um, it, so we get the messages late. But the message to my wife was Psalm 1819. Psalm 1819. And it, it's a promise that God will lead us to a spacious place because he loves us. This idea of refuge, it could be your spacious place. It, it could be your home, it could be your bedroom, it could be the quiet you have in the car before you walk in the house, it could be the quiet in the office before everybody shows up virtually or in person, it, it could be the chair that you've prayed in for decades, it, it could be the conversation you have with a friend every Tuesday morning and we've been doing this forever and the eggs are always the same. It could be anything at all, but we all need these places where we enjoy the refuge that God gives us. And we meet him. And he tells us the truth about who we are and who he is. So that we can trust in him. God is a famously faithful fortress. Eugene Peterson says this, Living as a Christian is not walking a tightrope without a safety net above a breathless crowd. It is sitting secure in a fortress. And he goes on in his book, he says, it is also not whistling in the dark. Right? It doesn't mean that we're just somehow <laughs> gliding up the mountain and the weather doesn't change and we don't fall and we don't get tired and we don't get bruised or hurt. Absolutely those things happen. It is not whistling in the dark. Uh, a person of faith may say, I'm never moved. I am. Vitality in my faith one day and venom at the Massachusetts driver later the same day. <laughs> Rejoicing 
in our faith one day, recoiling from it the next. The thermometer goes up and down with the temperature. The barometer goes up and down with the pressure. But our security, as Peterson says, I love this, it comes from geology, not psychology. It comes from geology, not psychology. It's the mountain, not the man. That's what a guy told me, and I was up at the top of a mountain, and we were having a little conversation. He was a rescue uh, guy. He, uh, you know, a lot of the rescue teams up there are volunteer, and he was a part of the Pemigewasset uh, Rescue Group, and they've got these cool acronyms. And he was just hiking that day. I just happened to meet him, and we were talking about rescuing people. And, you know, I had been reading a few books. I was bouncing some things off of him, and he just real stone cold looked at me, and, and he's like, all the things that I've seen, all the tragedies, yes, I've seen people that have passed away, but most people don't, but we're, you know, carry them down the mountain, or we've got to put them on the Blackhawk and send them off. All these things happen. And he's like, I have yet to see the mountain cause it. It's not the mountain. It's the man. And I think his intention was also that men instead of women have many more accidents on the mountain, but I I don't know. (laughs) Climbing is difficult. You are constantly being tugged where? Down away from your goal the whole time. There's barriers, there's hazards, our own personal determination, our, our tiredness, our stamina, There are slips, there are accidents, there are dehydrations. Yet, God is the famously faithful fortress. As we ended last week singing, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. It's the mountain. It doesn't change. We are the ones who change. It's not the mountain. It's a man. I want to walk you through four stories where we see that it's not the mountain. It's the man. And and I've intentionally not put these up on the screen because I want you to hear them how God's people heard them. I want you to just listen. I want you to imagine yourself in the audience. Story number one Deuteronomy 29. Moses is talking to the people of God, and he's been telling them over and over and over, these are all the things that God has done. And he's pulling them forward, and he tells them this, Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, into all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. Signs and wonders. It's a phrase that's used in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. For God's people, they did not believe in God, they did not trust in God because of propositions or ideas. They believed and trusted in God because of signs, which in the Hebrew literally means a demonstration. God showing him who he was. He hovered over the waters. Now there's a tent. Now he's on Zion, but now he's actually working among them. 
he sends and he performs all of these signs in Egypt and he pulls them out. That's what they saw. And it should, should lead to trust. Or as Dave said last week, faith. You can interchange them. Verse 4, but to this day, Moses says, you do not have the mind that understand, the ears that see, or the eyes that hear. And so there's this idea of signs are a demonstration, and they should lead to faith. But our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, they have to be woken up. And they have to pay attention. And then just a few chapters later, he's still talking. Moses was not, you know, short-winded. And in, in chapter 30, verse 11, he says, Now what I'm commanding you to do today is not too difficult. That's like, you know, when you're breathing really hard and you're climbing up a mountain and someone who's, you know, like really in shape, like Pastor Dave, is like, come on, we got this. And like, doesn't, doesn't feel like we got it. He says, it's not too difficult. But then verse 15, chapter 30, Moses says to them, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. It's just a straight up choice. And we already know from what I just read, they've got the signs, they've got the demonstrations and they have the choice to trust in the Lord. And that comes from our minds and our hearts and our eyes and our ears being open. Story number one, Deuteronomy. Same person involved in the second story, Moses. Anybody know Moses' lowest moment? What did he do? He murdered. He killed somebody. Moses, in anger, killed someone. Now, most scholars don't think it was intentional, but nonetheless, someone was dead at his hand, and he ran away. One of the laws that God gives to Moses as he comes back and begins to bring the people out of Egypt, one of the laws he gives them is what's called a city of refuge. Have you ever heard of this? The city of refuge, and it's in your small group or your follow-up guide. You can download it online. Again, I'm not going to read the whole scripture. But it describes in several different places that there should be cities of refuge where God's people provide refuge, grace, to those who have acted violently. Three of these cities were actually built. There were supposed to be six. Only three we know about were actually built. And there was actually a process for redemption. If you had sinned against another person and their family has every right to kill you, death for death, eye for eye, death penalty, you could flee to one of these cities, put your hands on the altar of God, and throw yourself at the mercy of God. And the community, by law, had to protect you from those who had the right, according to the law, to kill you. Whew. That's a powerful idea. What are the pros? 
I mean, the person doesn't die. What if they did it accidentally? There, there's an opportunity for them to have grace. Maybe there's an opportunity for restitution or redemption. There's all kinds of things. It's an exhibition of the grace of Jesus Christ that is going to come to all. What are the cons? What if you can't run faster than the people chasing you? What if you can't get to the city? There's supposed to be six of them spread out all over. What if those three are way over there and you're way over here? I mean, it's not a perfect system. It's an incomplete system. And so God's people didn't really institute it. Cities of refuge. Now think about both of those examples. Think about Deuteronomy. Who, who is God in there? I mean, he's faithful. He's a fortress. He, he's the rock. He's the one saying, this is all the stuff I've done for you. And who are the people? They're the ones, just like us. Uh, not sure which way I'm going to go. Think about the cities of refuge. Who is God? He's the one providing this counterintuitive way to receive and be a part of the life of a community even after something is terrible like Moses did, of killing another human being. And it's a picture of grace and redemption, but it was incomplete. In both cases, it's not the mountain. It's the man. The mountain's the same, like Mount Zion. He's not changing. We're the ones who are changing. Third story, my middle namesake, Jeremiah, I always thought it was funny, my parents named me Douglas Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah literally means weeping prophet. Yeah, no, it's real strong. <laughs> Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah, weeping prophet, he's often telling the people things that are going to get him killed unless they really, really trust in the Lord and have open hearts and eyes and minds, which they do not. So he's giving them a very hard message. Hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 7. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Here comes the heat. Are you ready? Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Yes, it says it three times. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if, now he tells us what that looks like, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So the idea of the cities of refuge, were they living it? No. And not even that, they weren't fulfilling the consistent command of God over time, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to care for, and I'll just read it again, the alien, the fatherless, the widow. They say they trust in the Lord, but they're actually not walking in his ways. And so then Jeremiah says this, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, 
burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do these things? And God says, no, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? It's not the mountain, it's the man. Does that passage ring a bell for anybody? Who else used that phrase? Hmm. Matthew 21, fourth story. Jesus has come in on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest from some people. And others are doing what? They're grumbling and talking in a corner about how they're going to arrest him. It's Holy Week. And, and Jesus has just arrived into Jerusalem. He's coming in on the donkey. Guess what psalms he was singing with the people as they ascended the hill? Psalms of ascent. He's literally coming right out of that pilgrimage. And in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area. And he looks around. And it says he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a, a den of robbers. It's not the mountain, it's the man. Jesus then immediately goes, he, he begins to heal people. The authorities get upset. He goes and heals more people. The authorities get upset. He, he's doing all of these things in his last days. And he's providing grace and providing redemption. And he, he says this at, at the end of one of the parables in the same passage. He says to the people, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness. Remember John the Baptist? He, he was a Jeremiah-like prophet who was always giving God's word to the people. And he says, you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. So if you were putting money on who are going to be those who trust in the Lord, it wouldn't have been on those people. It wouldn't have been on the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It would have been on the people who knew the scriptures and God had been cultivating relationship and they were in covenant for him. But it's not the mountain, it's the man. And in that case, they were not what? They were not open. Their eyes didn't see him. Their ears didn't hear him. He said this often. But those who have eyes to see, see. And if you read through this passage and you just keep going through, verse, through chapters 22 in Matthew and chapter 23, you can see Jesus. He's talking to the religious people, the ones who should definitely recognize him, and then talking to those and extending grace to those who do. And then the last verse I want to read in this passage is one you've probably heard before. And you picture Jesus, he's outside the temple, still talking. He's over the city, Mount Zion. And he stands there and he says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. It's a picture of Jesus literally over the city that historically God has been a famously 
faithful fortress surrounding his people. And Jesus, God, is holding up his hands and saying, how I wished I could have surrounded you. If only you had seen. And of course, we have so many examples of those who who did see that should encourage us. But one of my favorites is Thomas. Famously called Doubting Thomas. But you know what? I've stood over the mount of where his grave is in southeastern India. And after his experience with Jesus, he took the gospel to that country, what they believe and church history tells us was for the first time. And he was killed as a martyr right there. You don't die as a martyr because you're not faithful. Doubts don't remove you from the kingdom of God. They help you understand what it's really about. And Jesus isn't afraid of his doubts. In, in John 21, he, he comes to Thomas and he says, peace be with you, shalom. Put your finger here, see my sides. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And then here comes the promise. You remember the signs and demonstrations? Their faith is from things that are seen. So is Thomas's, but listen to what Jesus says. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The blessing for us, church, is that we can believe in Jesus and his actions over time. And he is a famously faithful fortress and a friend. A friend who lets us bring our toughest questions Put our hand in his side. Feel if the wound is really him. Listen to his answers. He's a famously faithful fortress and friend. Hebrews tells us we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who have learned the same thing. And it says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, Hebrews 11. And then Hebrews 12, it tells us the best news ever, that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith, not us. He's the mountain. And the mountain became the man. Because we couldn't do it ourselves. So he's our author, and he's our perfecter. The last thing I want to end with, and then we're going to just have a quiet moment of prayer, is Eugene Peterson, and he says this, discipleship is a decision to live by what we know about God, not by what we feel about him ourselves, and our neighbor. Discipleship is a decision to live by what we know about God. The things that we have heard, that our eyes have been opened to, our ears have been opened to, not by what we feel about him, ourselves, or our neighbor. 
And so the prayerful question I want us to, to sit in for a few moments is simply, God, where are my feelings out of line with who you are? God, where are my feelings out of line with who you are? Let's sit in that for a few moments and the team can come up and prepare to lead us in a time of worship.